Hey everyone, welcome to the Promise Church Podcast. At the end of this episode, please take a moment to like us and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at My Promise Church. And to see what else is going on around here at Promise, please visit us at mypromisechurch.com. We hope this message you're about to listen to ministers to you and changes your life. Enjoy. presence of the Lord in the house. I feel like God has come to do something today. I'm grateful to be with you. If you're able to stand with me, I want us to pray today and just believe that God is going to uh, touch us in a powerful way. I always feel a great presence of the Lord. I wonder if we could just ask the Lord to direct the rest of this service. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we just thank you this time together in your house, Lord. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would come and do what only you can do today, Lord. God, I pray that you would be near to us, God, when we call on you. Lord, those who are, who are seeking an answer, God, those who are hurting, Lord, I believe that you will be near to us, God. I believe that you will be a healer, Lord. I believe that you will be a comforter. God, I pray, Lord, that those that have come with a need today, that you will be a provider to them, God. Lord, I pray, God, those of us that have come, Lord, just believing for something in our life, Lord, we need, we need salvation, we need healing, we need direction, we need purpose, we need delivering, God, we need comforting, Lord. I believe that you are everything that we need today. And I pray that over this house, I pray that over this church family, God, I pray that over everybody in this place, Lord, that you would be everything that we need. And we thank you today, Father. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, how many said amen? Amen, amen, amen. I'm excited today. We are going to begin a new message series that will run up to Easter. always love to do a gospel-centered, um, uh, gospel-centered uh, message series. Last year I did um, uh, Seven Sayings of the Cross. I think I called it The Cross Spoke. And um, I really, really enjoyed preaching through that. Um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to kind of a, a Christ-centered one uh, as we go up. We're four Sundays away from Easter, so Easter's going to be big here at Promise. Um, I don't even know what to do because we've had two full services today. Um, I just think Easter's going to be bananas, uh, but I'm up for it, so I'm excited about that. All right, yeah. And um, I'm excited. I love, I love the Easter season. It's a time where folks plug into church. They... Um, um, they, they kind of get planted. That's what we've been talking about the last month. And so we've a lot of got, got a lot of things happening. In fact, our next steps, if you've never done next steps, we're doing step two right after church in the Life Center. Uh, I've got ch- we've got child care. We've got lunch provided. And uh, it's a great time. And uh, it's really an introduction to the church, gets you into the life of the church and it tell you what the church is all about and different things like that. So if you'd like to be a part of that, we'd love for you too. We're going to have a lot of things leading up to Easter. But I want to preach from this today, and they've already got the title up there. But I want to go, before we get to that title, um, I want to go to that opening verse there, um, Carlin's. It's Matthew chapter 16, verse number 13. I want to say thank you to the worship team. Didn't they do a great job today? God bless them. 
You know, one of the, uh, one of the awesome things about the, the church is that you can come in here today and you might be low, you might be drained, you might, your, your tank, everybody's talking about gas prices, your tank might be low, but we've got folks on the platform up here, and I want to honor Nate and Cecily over there, they lead this worship community, and um, they don't, they blush when I say this, but they do a great job leading this worship team, and they've got, they've, they lead a team that's up here that's already fired up, they're already full of the Holy Spirit. And there's an overflow in the house. And it begins to flow over. And, and I just, I, I'm grateful for that. I'm grateful for that. And so so I, I want to start in this, this verse. This verse or this passage right here is going to be the, the foundation of the next four weeks. There's this great um, question that Jesus asks his disciples that begins a discussion. It says, when Jesus came to Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say I, the Son of Man, is? Who who are people saying that I am? What are people saying about me? Let me see that next verse. Carlin's go, I'll I'll just keep going through them. They replied, some say you're like John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. They're saying, you know, some people think you're kind of like John the Baptist. You've got a job to do. You've got a specific task. Some people say you're like Elijah, you're you're coming and you're doing some great miracles. Some say you're like Jeremiah, you got a a present word for people. And and Jesus says, okay, that's fine. This is what everybody else is saying. But what do you, my disciples, the 12 that are with me every single day, who do you say that I am? And I love Simon Peter because he chimes in first. And he says, you are the Messiah. A few people caught that. You're the Messiah. You're not, just, you're not just here for a task, not just here to do some miracles, not just here to do some teaching, but you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. You are Emmanuel, God with us. You're the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, the son of God. Jesus replies, blessed are you, Simon. His name was still Simon. Simon son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood. Nobody told you this. You didn't read this in a textbook. But by my Father in heaven. But by my Father in heaven. And this is where Jesus changes his name. He says, I tell you that you are Peter. Peter means rock. And he says, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overcome it. So this isn't my message today, but hey, no matter what comes against the church, hell itself could come against the church. But hell will not prevail against what Jesus died for, Jesus bled for, Jesus purchased. That's not my sermon, but I just want to get that in there. We've already won. Somebody said, I read the back of the book. We already won. And I think I got uh, that verse 19 there quickly. It says, and I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. That understanding right there that Jesus is the son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, unlocks heaven. Did you catch that? When you understand that he's not just a teacher, 
not just a carpenter's son, not just, not just had some good ideas, not just come and did a few miracles, but when you realize he's the son of God, he's the Christ, he's the Messiah, it unlocks everything God can do in your life. And so I want to preach today that Jesus is our king. Tell somebody around you, Jesus is my king. Turn to, turn to your second favorite choice and say, Jesus is my king. Turn to your third favorite choice and say, Jesus is my king. And you can be seated. We won't do no more of that. <laughs> so who do you say that he is? I'll tell you today that Jesus is more than a teacher, but he's the king. On his cross, they put on the top of it that he was the king of the Jews. I'll tell you, he's more than the king of the Jews. He's the king of kings. But if you only think he was king of the Jews, you miss out on a lot that God can do for you. If you only think he's a good teacher, you'll miss out on a lot that he can do for you. But I want to preach today that Jesus is our king. And that's great news because Jesus is a good king. It's bad when you have a bad king, but it's good when you have a good king. Because here's the thing about a king, and this is what I'm going to unpack a little bit today, but a king can pretty much do whatever he wants to do. And that's good when he's a good king. It's bad when he's a bad king. It's good that he's a good king. There's this idea in theology that God is sovereign, and Without diet, there's people smarter than me that could really dive down into the depths of it. But what it really means is God can do what he wants to do. But because his nature is a benevolent father, what he decides to do is good. And so God is good. God is sovereign. God sits on the throne. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. His ways are higher than my ways. His thoughts are higher than my thoughts. And so he's a good king, and I'm grateful he's the king because he's a good king. He's a good God, he's a good father, and he's a good king, and I'm grateful to be in his kingdom because he's a good king. Now here's what kings have the duty to do. This is my first thing I'll dive right in. Kings have the duty to rule. They have a duty, and their duty is to rule on things that come up to create a law for things that come up. They have a duty to decide matters, to judge things, to make decisions on things. The king has the duty that if something rises to his desk, rises to his throne, he's got to make a rule on it. He's got to make a call on it. He's got to decide something on it. Uh, one of the, the most famous ones that will come to mind was King Solomon. God gave King Solomon a supernatural wisdom that when two mothers came to King Solomon, both claiming that this child, this baby was theirs, God gave Solomon supernatural wisdom to decide which woman was the natural mother. But what happens is a king has a duty to rule on these matters. And the good news is today, 
Let, let me show you Isaiah 9, 6, and 7 before I get to the good news. But it says, this is, a, this is a verse we oftentimes read at Christmas, and we just leave it in the Christmas season. But I want to draw something out today, because this shows us that his calling his, was prophesied over his life was to be our king, to be our ruler, to govern us. It says, for unto us a child is born. You might remember this from Christmas. To unto us a son is given, and the governor government will be on his shoulders. His duty, his burden, his job is to put the governing on his shoulders. It's his duty. It's his calling to govern us. It will be on his shoulders. And he's going to be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Now watch this now in verse 7 because that's usually where we leave it. But it says, of the greatness of his government. The, the New King James said, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign in David's throne and over his kingdom. He'll establish it. He'll uphold it. And here's how he's ruling, with justice and righteousness from that time on forever. I don't want to get down too deep in the weeds here, but when Jesus stepped in, he now had the right the ability, and the duty to rule. And no matter what the law said, the government's on my shoulders. No matter what the rule said, I'm the final word on this matter. I remember when a woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Now the kids are next door. Caught in the very act of adultery. And they said, Jesus... What should we do with her? The law says stone her. And Jesus steps in between the law. I know what the law said, but this is what grace says. The government's on my shoulders. The rule is on my shoulders. I know what the law says, but I say go and sin no more. And so all of a sudden, the king has the duty to rule. Three times in Revelation, it says Jesus rules the nations with an iron scepter. Jesus has the ability to step in between you and the law when you're in his kingdom. I'm grateful to be in his kingdom because he has the ability to step in and say, the law might say this, but this is my child. Somebody ought to help me. This is my daughter. This is my son. And I know what the law says, but this is what mercy says. This is what grace says. And I'll tell you, until, until that day comes when it's all wrapped, there's going to be a day when it's all wrapped up, and he's going to wipe every tear from our eye. He's going to right every wrong. There's going to be justice to every wrong. There's going to be a payment, a repayment. There's going to be a reward for every good deed. And there will be a repayment for every bad deed. And Jesus said on that day that he will divide the lambs from the goats. He'll say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into heaven, life everlasting. And he'll say, I never knew you. Depart from me. That will happen someday. But until that day, there's grace. There's mercy, there's forgiveness, there's salvation, there's hope, there's grace until that day because he has the duty to rule.
Now, here's an example of a king in action uh, from our actual our American history. Now, we've never really had a king, but the closest thing we ever had to a king was George Washington. They actually tried to make him king, and he, he said, no, no, I only want to do this for eight years. I don't know if maybe it's a stressful job or something. You ever seen those pictures where the president comes in, he's got dark hair, he goes out, and he's got lines and dark circles, and his hair's white, and you're thinking... How did that happen in four years, you know? Eight years, whatever. So George Washington said, no, eight years is good, I'm done. And, and they tried to make him king, but he was, he was a general at this time, and then he would later be the president. But what happened is um, there was a turncoat collaborator named Michael Weidman. He was captured, and, and he was a double agent. He was a spy. They called him a turncoat. And, and he was spying on the American troops and reporting back to the British. So he was, he was embedded with the uh, American troops, but he was reporting back to the British. And he was found, he, they found him out, and they, they found him guilty of spying, and he was sentenced to death for hanging. And on the evening before his execution, an old man with white hair asked to talk to General Washington. And he gave his name, he said his name was Peter Miller. Now, uh, General Washington did not know him by name, but when they explained that he was a chaplain that was ministering to the army's sick and wounded soldiers at Valley Forge that had come down with sicknesses and ailments and injuries from the battle, he was ushered in without delay. And General Washington agreed to see him, and the man comes in, the chaplain comes in, and says, General, I have a favor to ask of you. He says, I've come to ask you to pardon Michael Weidman that you are planning to execute tomorrow. And Washington says, impossible. He's already been tried. He's already been sentenced. The verdict has already come down. The gavel has already hit the desk. Impossible. He said, that man did everything in his power to betray us and to destroy us. He shook his head and he said, in these, le- in these times, we cannot be lenient with traitors. And for that reason, I cannot pardon your friend. And the chaplain looks back and says, friend, he's been no friend to me. He is my bitterest enemy. He persecuted me for years. He beat me. He spit in my face, knowing full well that I would not strike back. That man is no friend of mine. Washington was puzzled. And he said, And you wish for me to pardon him? And he said, I do. I would consider it a great personal favor. He said, why? He said, I ask that for that because Jesus did that much for me and more. He said, I "I preach to our people that we are to love and to forgive our enemies. Washington turns away and he walks into the next room. A minute later, he sends one of his servants in to tell uh, uh, the chaplain to wait for him for just a few minutes. As he's pondering this and deliberating in the next room, he begins to write down on a piece of paper a pardon for Michael Weidman. And then he writes a personal note to the chaplain. And he says, my dear friend, and places that paper in the old man's hand. He says, I want to thank you for reminding me about grace and mercy in these awful days. George Washington, he was a president, he was a general, a lot of people called him a king. He realized it was within his power to step in between justice, to step in between the law, to step in between the gavel and say, I know what the law said, but there's a space for grace. 
there's a place for mercy. I want to tell you, our king has stepped in between the law. He stepped in between death. And he said, there's a place for mercy. There's a place for grace. I'm thankful that we serve a good king. I wonder if anybody say amen right there. Jesus gave us this story about a king that uh, was forgiving. And, and I want to I read through this parable quickly today. And it's such a powerful parable. It's in Matthew chapter 18. I taught on this parable uh, a few years ago on a Wednesday night. And I came back to it when I was looking at this planted series. And I wanted to try to fit it in today. And, and this idea that um, it's, in, it's in Matthew 18, 21 through 35, Carlin's. Um, there we go. So it says, Peter came to Jesus and he asked, he said, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister that sins against me? Now, Peter's thinking he's being generous, saying, Lord, should I forgive somebody seven times? And Jesus says, I tell you not seven times. What does it say? Seventy-seven times? I got to forgive them 77 times? And then Jesus goes, I, didn't, I guess that didn't hit home. We got to forgive folks 77 times. So if somebody cuts you off on the way home 77 times, you cannot swear at them. You cannot honk at them. You got to let them cut you off 77 times. It's in the Bible, right? There, so Jesus tells this parable. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king. Everybody say, like a king. A king came to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlement, a man that owned him owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since he was not able to pay, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him, says, Be patient with me, and I will pay back everything. The king took pity on him and canceled the debt, watch it now, and lets him go. You catch that? He let him go. Let me see that next verse. But when that servant uh, went out, he found one of his fellow servants that owed him a hundred silver coins. He grabbed him, begins to choke him, and says, pay back what you owe me, he demands. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay it all back. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had that man thrown in prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and went and told the king everything that had happened. Then the king called the servant in and said, you wicked servant, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, the king hands him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owes. Then Jesus ties it all together and says, I don't want to step on anybody's toes, but this is what Jesus said. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. Wow. Wow. I think we could just end right there and do an altar call. And we would all have 
hot tears to cry into this altar today because I don't want on judgment day my heavenly father say, hey, I had enough mercy for you, but you didn't have no mercy for nobody else. It's a challenging word from the Lord. In fact, this man is called the unforgiving forgiven. I don't ever want to be called the unforgiving forgiven. Somebody that was forgiven of a lot, but is unforgiving to somebody else. This man is not going to forgive his friend, but he chose to receive the forgiveness of the king. He is saying, king, I'll take everything that you have for me, but I'm not willing to dispense it to anybody else. I'll take forgiveness for what I've done wrong, but I'm not willing to forgive anybody else. Jesus is saying, I forgave you of a lot. You ought to be able to forgive somebody else of just a little bit. Jesus warned the disciples, freely you have received, and so freely you ought to give. I think that's a big thing right there. I don't know about anybody else, but God has forgiven me of a lot. And so it ought to be easy for me to forgive somebody else. I'm just going to stay there for a second. If somebody cuts me off in traffic today, I ought to say, God bless you. Because I've done a lot worse than that, buddy. If somebody doesn't use their turn signal today, we ought to say, God bless you. Because God forgave me of some stuff way back there. And there. And then. And that time, it is a whole lot worse than not using a turn signal. And so if Jesus forgave me of all that, I ought to be able to forgive my brother. I ought to be able to forgive my sister. And there's folks out there that won't forgive somebody because they didn't say hi to them. There's folks out there that won't forgive somebody because they forgot their birthday. And I just want to tell you, Jesus forgave me of a lot. And so I ought to forgive somebody else of a lot. I don't know about anybody else, but Jesus has done so much for me that I cannot tell it all. And not only can I not tell it all, but I cannot keep it all. He has forgiven me, so I want to forgive you. Somebody ought to help me today. He showed me grace. So I want to show somebody else grace. He showed me mercy. So I want to show somebody else mercy. He was good to me. He loved me. He saved me. I want to give it away. Somebody ought to say amen right there. You know, you've got to understand, this man was forgiven of a massive debt. But he couldn't forgive a small debt. In this day, you know, you have to understand this. In this day, we don't, thankfully, we don't live under this law today. But if you couldn't pay your debt, the owner of that debt, you know, we live in a day where they could come take your boat. Right? You with me? They could come take your truck, your car. They could even come take your house. They could put a lien on some things that you owe, and they can get some money out of you. They could take your car, sell it for what they can sell it for, and get some of their money back. But in this day, they could come and actually take you. They could take your kids. They could take your grandkids. And they could put you into servitude until you worked off the debt and say, hey, you're going to come to my cattle ranch and you're going to work until you pay off that debt. 
Now, I don't want to know who's in credit card debt, but somebody ought to say, amen, I'm glad we don't live in that time anymore. Visa be coming after some of us. MasterCard be coming after some of us. We'll be working in their call center for a while, just answering phones. <laughs> so the king was coming to confiscate all of their property and then take him and his children and put them into servitude. And in the King James, it tells us that he owed the king a monetary unit called talents. And then, so he owed the king a monetary unit called talents, but then this guy that he did business with owed him a monetary unit called denarii. Now, these were two monetary units in the story. I'm going to move through this real quick, but you've got to understand this to understand the parable. They were the quarters and the dollars of their time. It was their monetary system. So he owed, watch it now, he owed the king 10,000 talents. Everybody say 10,000. Now, are you ready for this? One talent, he owed him 10,000, but one talent equals 15 years of salary for the average household. Now, I want to put that into today's dollar amount. So going on the average salary for the American worker today, 15 years for the American household, one talent would be $750,000. Now, he didn't owe him one talent. How many talents did he owe him? 10,000. And so 10,000 talents is 10,000 multiplied by the average yearly wage multiplied by 15. So we're up to over $7.5 billion that he owed the king. And the king said, you're forgiven of the whole debt. Now, how many would shout a praise, catch the Holy Ghost, run a lap, Swing off the chandelier if somebody said you are forgiven of a $7 billion debt. I'd be celebrating. I'd be like, watch out. I'm getting. (laughs) Because I don't owe nobody $7 billion. So if you forgave me of my debt, I'd be in the black by a lot because I don't owe nobody $7 billion. I'd be. Glory, hallelujah. There is a God in heaven. 10,000 talents, 15 years of service multiplied by 10,000. That would be 150,000 years of labor to pay off the debt. Now, you don't live 150,000 years. Jesus was alive 2,000 years ago. 150,000 years is just shy of 55 million days. How he ran up that debt, I don't know. Because you don't have 150,000 years on the planet and you don't have 55 million days to work. Catch it now. It was a debt that he could not pay. And it was a great picture of our relationship with the King of Kings. Because I've been forgiven of a massive debt called sin. An eternal debt. That wasn't going to just take 55 million days to pay, but it would be an eternity to pay. And the reason that Jesus told this parable this way is because all of us owed a debt that we could not pay, but the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords stepped in. Somebody ought to get a hold of this today. Stepped into the law stepped into the collection courtroom and said it's a debt that they'll never be able to pay 
I want to cancel that debt. I want to forgive that debt. I want to wash away your sin. I want to wipe away your sin. Somebody ought to say it with me today. What can wash away our sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ. Somebody ought to give God a praise right there. Because I owed a debt that I could not pay. But Jesus forgave my sin. Number two, it's already on the screen. Here's what I want to say about this. Our king expects his kingdom to do the same. To do like he does. He forgave. He wants us to forgive. He showed us love. He wants us to show love. He showed us mercy. He wants us to show mercy to somebody else. Our king expects his kingdom to do the same because the king sets the pace. The king sets the standard. The king sets the bar. The king sets the culture. And Jesus is showing us, if I can forgive a whole big debt, he ought to be able to forgive as well. Now this man who had been forgiven of so much, he encounters a business associate of his own in verse 28 that owed him a hundred denarii. Now a talent was 15 years wages. A denarii, watch it now, was one day's wage. A talent was 15 years wage. A denarii was one day. He owed the king 150,000 years wages, 55 million days, and there's some guy over here that owes him 100 days wages. 55 million. I don't want to rip my pants. Yet. 100 days. 55 million days. 100 days. And verse 28 tells us he goes, grabs him by the throat and demands payment. His business associate falls on his knees, begs him, says, be patient with me. I'll pay you back. Just give me 100 days. Now, I would think that he could find it in his heart to say, you know what? I just got forgiven of $7 billion debt. Just write it off, bud. Just write it off. I don't know where we're writing it off to, but we're just writing it off. I just got wrote off seven billion. I can write off a hundred. And this imagery is the very same thing. The man falls on his knees, begs. How did that imagery not bring to his mind the fact that he was in that position just the former day? And he did not act like the king on that day. He said, no, I won't forgive the debt. I'm not going to be patient with you. I'm going to take you into servitude until you repay. And so even after receiving a massive forgiveness, you would think this man would become a massive forgiver. But he didn't. In another sense, Jesus taught us, freely you've received. Freely you ought to give. But Jesus is showing us that humanity can be this way where I just got forgiven of a whole lot of stuff. I don't know when you came to Christ. I don't know what age you were when you came to the Lord. And I don't know what you've done since you come to the Lord. And I don't care. That's between you and the Lord. Amen. But I want you to think about for a moment all the stuff you got forgiven of. When you were 16, when you were 18, somebody help me, when, when you were 21, what you did to them, what you said, 
where you went. (laughs) And Jesus forgave me of all of it. And here I am getting upset at somebody that didn't use their turn signal. Jesus, help me be like a king and say, hey, you're forgiven. There's grace. There's mercy. Because Jesus forgave me of so much. I've got to forgive somebody else. I've got to be reminded that I was forgiven of a massive debt. I've been saved from so much. I've been blessed by God. If I didn't have Jesus in my life, I don't know where I'd be today. That's why when the worship team gets up here and begins to strike a note, I've just got to give God a praise. Because I'm not going to sit there and act like He never did anything for me. He forgave me, so I want to worship the King that forgave me. I want to praise the King that saved me. I want to worship the king that forgave me of so much. I don't want to sit there on my hands and act like he never did anything for me. He saved me. He picked me up. He forgave me of a great big debt that I could have never repaid. That's what Jesus has done in my life. You know, um, the last thing I want to say is that the king has the power to pardon. The king has the power to pardon. To pardon. Now, this is, this is tremendous news today. It was legal for that king to call in the debt. It was legal for that king to take him into servitude until he worked off all of that debt. And Lord knows he didn't have enough days to work, to work off all of that debt. The law tells us that the penalty for sin is death and hell. And it is. The king had every right to throw him into jail. And our sin is hanging over us like a judgment. And the only way to repay sin, the penalty for sin, is death. It's hung over all of us. The Bible said in Hebrews that, the Hebrew writer said, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. From the very beginning in the garden, God allowed a sacrifice. He allowed a sacrificial lamb. He allowed there to be a sacrifice, but blood had to be shed. And all of it was looking forward to the spotless lamb. The writer said what the blood of bulls and goats could not accomplish, the lamb of God took our sin away. And so that... that That thing that was hung over my head, the king has the ability to step in with a pardon. And he's giving us mercy and he's giving us grace. Now, I kind of gave it away in the beginning when I was getting too excited. But there was a woman that was caught in the very act of adultery. And the, 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 the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they go to Jesus and they say, Teacher, teacher, you know the law. The law says that she's supposed to be stoned. The law says that we should drag her out of the city gates right now and stone her. That's what the law says. And Jesus says, I know what the law says. He, dips, he, he stoops down, the Bible says. And he begins to write in, with his finger in the sand. 
Now, the Bible doesn't record what he wrote in the sand. None of us really know. But what he said might give us a clue as to where his mind was and potentially what he was writing in the sand. The Bible says that Jesus' reply was, Let the one without sin, George has it, cast that first stone. I know the law says stoner. I know the law says take her out of the city gates right now and stone her. I know what the law says, but here's what grace says. Here's what mercy says. It says, let the one without sin cast the first stone. Now, we don't know what he was writing in the sand, but people smarter than me have said possibly he was writing the sins of those guys holding the rock just so they didn't forget, I'm not without sin. I can't be the one to throw this stone because he's writing my sin in the sand. None of us are without sin, so we can't throw the first stone. I can't go to somebody else, grab them by the throat, and say, repay to me because I was forgiven a great debt by my king. And Jesus says, look, turns to her and says, where are your accusers? They've all dropped their stones and they've all walked away. And Jesus says, where are thine accusers? Where are those that are condemning you? Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. The good news here today is the law might say one thing, but grace says another thing. Mercy says another thing. Jesus says, you're forgiven. Go and sin no more. Jesus says, there's mercy, there's grace. Go and sin no more. On that day, she realized he is not just a good teacher. He's not just like John the Baptist, but this man is a king because he has the power to pardon my sin. I want to tell you today, Jesus has the power to pardon your sin. Jesus was hung, the Bible says, between two criminals, between two thieves. He's hanging on that cross. Now, the earthly kingdom had sentenced them all to death. I don't know if that thief, who's known as the penitent thief, I don't know if he knew that story about that woman that was caught in adultery. But somewhere, as he's hanging on that cross, and they're calling him the king of the Jews, it begins to dawn on him, he's more than the king of Jews. He's the king of kings. And his kingdom is not in this world. But it's a heavenly kingdom. And he said, Lord, Master, he said, would you remember me when you come in to your kingdom? He recognized the kingdom doesn't end here on this cross. But his kingdom is a heavenly kingdom. And he realized, I might be under the penalty of law on this earth. But I can be released in the next kingdom. And he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, truly, today you will be with me in paradise. He understood what the other thief did not understand, that the king has the power to pardon. Music come. I got to close today. You know, it said that Jesus was coming in the throne of David, that he would rule in the throne of David. And I thought about this powerful story when David came into his throne. It said that um, when David came to take the throne in Israel, 
it was customary in that time. Stay with me. This, I'm closing right now. It was customary for the king to either imprison or to even kill every descendant of the former king. That way there would not be an uprising. There would not ever be a rightful heir to the throne. His, 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 uh, his kingship would never be challenged by uh, any family or uh, heir of, of the former throne. But David was different. David was a gracious king. David was a merciful king. How many know David was forgiven of much? And Jesus said, if you're forgiven of much, you'll forgive much. And if you're forgiven of much, you'll love much. And David, he, he's a gracious king. And so he calls his servants together and he says, guys, I want you to search all of my kingdom and I want you to bring me any descendants of King Saul, the former king. And the word comes back to David and says, David, there's one man left that we were able to find that's a descendant of King Saul. He's gone into hiding. He's scared for his life. He's been running. We don't know a whole lot about him, but here's, we know three things. We know that his name is Mephibosheth. We know that he's the son of Jonathan and the grandson of King Saul. And thirdly, we know that he is a crippled man. And, the, he, and David says, bring him to me, go find him, and bring him to me out of hiding. His servants go and find Mephibosheth. Certainly he had to have been afraid of what David was going to do, what the king would do to him. And so they bring him out of hiding. King David brings him into the throne room. This man answers the king's call, but no doubt he's afraid, he's nervous. When he comes into the throne room, he bows before the king, and he says, King... I'm at your service. David says, Mephibosheth, I want to show you kindness for your father's sake. I want to show you kindness for your grandfather's sake. He said, Mephibosheth, I'm going to restore to you the heritage of your family's land. I'm going to give you back the riches of your father and the riches of your grandfather. I want to give you back the land, the vineyards, the farmland, the ranches. I want to give you everything back that your family ever had. And he said, furthermore, Mephibosheth, you will always have a seat at the king's table. That meant you'll eat what I eat. You'll drink what I drink. You'll celebrate when I celebrate. You'll have safety in the king's palace. You'll have everything that I have. He was saying, everything I have is yours. Every blessing I have, I want to share with you. I want to tell somebody today, you have a king. You're in a kingdom that he said, you've got a seat at the king's table. Somebody ought to celebrate today. You can eat what he eats. You can celebrate when he celebrates victory of the king is your victory. The salvation of the king is your salvation. The kingdom, the resources, the blessing, the provision, the grace, the mercy, it's all yours because he's given you a seat at his table. He's given you a seat at his table. Every head bowed, every eye closed. I want to open this altar today. It's our custom to close a service out with an opportunity to come forward and 
to enter the presence of the Lord, maybe enter that throne room like we sang about today, maybe to bow in the same way that Mephibosheth bowed in the presence of the king. And I'm going to pray over you, and I'm going to call, make a call to the church today. How many, with nobody looking around, how many would bow their head and just raise their hand and say, Lord, there's something I need for you to touch in my life. There's something that's crippled. There's something that's broken. There's something that needs forgiven. There's something that needs healing. There's something that needs touched. There's something that needs restored. I see a lot of hands around the house today. If that's you, I'm going to ask you to come. You can put your hands down. I'm going to ask you to come as I pray. And just envision this altar today as your place at the king's table. I believe at the king's table, God can touch you today. I wonder as I pray how many would come. Father, we just pray over this house today. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would begin to touch. That you would begin to touch those broken areas. You would begin to fix you would begin to heal, you would begin to restore, you would begin to change, you would begin to to show grace, you would begin to show mercy. And I pray that over this house today, in the name of Jesus. I wonder how many would come today and just talk to the Lord, maybe find a place to pray, just find a place to kneel in the altar today. I believe God can touch you. I believe God can touch you in the house today. I believe God can bless you. Once again, thank you so much for listening. Share this message with a friend and don't forget to hit subscribe.